Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rick Snyder. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge, the author of Decisive Intuition. And uh, this is one of my favorite things that I get to do every week to go live with you at uh, 9 a.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. UK time. And those of you listening to us in India, I know it's really late, like 9.30 p.m. or so in Delhi. Um, and this is once again a not-for-profit where we're exploring the depths of human, digital, and social transformation. And we're getting close to our first year anniversary coming up in a week or two. Uh, before I go any further, I want to introduce our amazing co-host, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Um, welcome again to another fantastic episode. What is, what is the number today? It's 47, 45, 40, 46. 46, okay. So three more and we're at half a century. And then I think by the time we do our 50th episode, we would have done a year, right? Mm -hmm. That's On right. On the 22nd of April, which is Earth Day. Uh, so that's our anniversary too. Talking about Earth Day, we have um, our, our great friend, uh, third time on the show, Charles Eisenstein. Um, cool, really cool guy and has a lot to say about a lot of very important issues and things. And today, Charles, we're welcoming you to talk about um, corporations, climate and, the, and compassion and looking beyond the numbers. It's, it's a big topic, admittedly. And it requires maybe a thesis or a couple of books. So 60 minutes may not justify it, but we can play with a lot of these issues and discuss them and get your opinions um, on a lot of this. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm, of course, the co-creator of, of STL. I love it. Straight Talk Live and um, the co-founder of Growth Enabler and a bunch of other things that I'm doing in my life. A lot of not-for-profit work as well. So, Rick, back to you. Throwing the ball over to you. And let's crack on. Okay, and so today we're going to do a deep dive, as Af was just talking about, around what is the role of corporations in our ecosystem these days, and how has that changed? How does that need to change? Um, if we're not just focused on shareholder profits and quarterly numbers, what's beyond that? How do we start to, how, how do we actually motivate corporations to look at the bigger picture and how they're connected? So with that, we have one of our very favorite thought leaders in the space, Charles Eisenstein. Charles, welcome back to Straight Talk Live. Uh, good to be here for some straight talk. <laughs> you ready? Yeah, I'm ready <laughs> to let's say do what it. it is. Okay. Yeah. You come to the right place. Okay, so let's start with that. So obviously you've been um, tracking uh, these spaces for a long time around our, our footprint, our corporate footprint, our human footprint on the planet, how we're relating to it, um, and, and a, an idea around a new social contract that the contract we've had is broken and has not been working. Um, give us a little slice on what you've been seeing even recently that's um, got your attention in this space. Well, first, let me uh, uh, just police your wording a little bit. Uh, Please. Like, just the, like the, um, the concept of a, of a footprint. Mm -hmm. Uh, typically, it invites you into some kind of calculation of how much uh, uh, ecological resource you are consuming with your lifestyle or with your corporation's supply chain and, and so forth. Uh, and this idea that you can calculate your impact, convert it into a number, 
and navigate your relationship with the world through that number, Mm. I think is actually part of the problem. Mm. It's a very comfortable and familiar way to deal with things because navigating by the numbers is in the DNA of not only the corporation, but, but modern, the modern consumer, the modern uh, neoliberal subject. Mm. Like you, you navigate according to what is going to maximize a number, uh, a financial number. So it's not that big a step to expand that number uh, to include the environment. And, and so the, the easiest way to do that is to uh, uh, calculate your carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. And then uh, abracadabra, you have a way to be moral, to be ethical, to be environmental. And my, my, so I guess to answer your question, I can say what is on my mind a lot with that is what gets left out of the numbers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I just came across a, a film. I haven't seen it yet, but my son saw it and was profoundly affected called Seaspiracy uh-huh. um, about the fishing industry. Mm. Uh, and at the same time as another friend wrote me about her uh, diving, like, uh, you know, coral reef explorations and just like being blown away by the beauty there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, here we have basically an industry, the fishing industry that's killing the ocean. And it's not that environmentalists are ignoring this, but if you just talk to environmental funders or, or, you know, read environmental um, uh, media, like that issue is <clears throat> tiny compared to climate change. Mm-hmm. Climate change is framed in terms of carbon. Mm-hmm. And so it fits into the same mentality of find something to measure and go to work on that. Mm-hmm. And what gets left out is the whales. What gets left out is the coral reefs. And if, yes, it's not that that climate is unrelated to these things, but one thing that I'm becoming increasingly concerned about is how the climate narrative sucks the air out of the room for other environmental issues yeah. that are actually <clears throat> more important when you look at the world through the, through the lens of, of life, of a living being, to understand the planet as alive, as having a physiology, as having organs. Then things get a lot more complicated than this uh, geomechanical view that uh, compares the earth kind of to like a big machine. And there's levels of this and levels of that and you tweak those levels kind of like an engineering object. So this is just to give you an example of this, this basic mindset and how you know, it's part of our economic thinking, it's part of our scientific thinking. I mean, and, and to suggest the magnitude of the change in front of us if we want to have a different kind of future. Charles, talk, talk us through, you've touched on a very important point. Um, and I think what you're saying is climate change has become carbon footprint in terms of the marketing message, both at an individual level and at a company corporate level, all through the, the, the different segments and groups. And often there is uh, some almost a generalization that if we sort out the climate issue, 
we'll probably sort out the environment. I mean, we'll, we'll live, Earth will be fine again. And I think what you're saying, and you touched on some very important points, may, it may sound obvious to many of us when we hear this, but you talk a lot about uh, cause and symptom, uh, and you can describe that momentarily. But I think one of the things you did you do, do talk about is outside of the stuff you're not seeing, outside of fixing the carbon issue, what else is going on? A byproduct of mass consumption and mass production and some form of aggressive capitalism is that we've got used to building things. We've got used to getting things fast and cheap. Um, globalization has something to do with it. We're, we're building buildings all over the place. Uh, we want food. Um, as quickly as possible. We want it, um, we process food as one part of it. Pesticides, I mean, if you look at a market like India, you know, there's a, there's a farmer revolution going on in India right now because they've been forced to do certain things that goes against the uh, the grain, pardon the pun, of, um, of what it means to be a farmer. And that involves using much more uh, chemical in, in, in the food production. Uh, we've seen that in the West already and all sorts of deforestation and land abuse. So can you tell us what, what sits on the other side? I've touched on the big, big areas, but just break it down for us so we understand the other side, the stuff we're not seeing. Well, let me start with India. Uh, what's really going on there is um, a coordinated effort to destroy village life and the rural economy and to put it in the hands of um, multinational corporations, uh, chemical companies, seed companies, uh, you know, big agricultural companies um, that and, and to, to, you know, convert essentially the land of India into a industrial agricultural production site, mm -hmm. which is similar to what's happened in, in North America, uh, in, in most of this, this continent. And yeah, the farmers are right to protest and they really deserve our support because, and, and, and like, you can, it's not that the corporations or the people in them are evil. They are doing this work with their own high ideals that unfortunately depend on a very limited view of, of the consequences and also a prejudice about what the future of humanity is and what a good life is mm. and what our, our destiny is. Mm. So the ideology of progress has long implied that we um, move away from the land, that we become more global, that we become more efficient, that we produce more using less labor. Right. Mm -hmm. And in that view, the lowliest profession would be the subsistence farmer. Mm -hmm. And progress would mean, yeah, my father was a farmer, but I've gone to university, you know, and my children are getting PhDs mm -hmm. and they're operating in a mechanized or information environment and not soiling their hands. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so this, um, and then they're producing much more food with less labor and we need more food, right? Because there's so many hungry people mm -hmm. and, and we need more goods because there's so many people in poverty. Mm -hmm. But after now, how long has it been since the industrial revolution, which was supposed to erase poverty and want forever? Mm. It's been a couple hundred years now mm -hmm. and we still have 
tremendous poverty and inequality. And it's because of the inequality. Like there is actually no objective shortage of food in the world. There's a huge surplus, but half the world wastes enough to feed the other half. There's no shortage of uh, floor space per capita in the world yet, or in North America, for example, but there's, you know, half a million or a million homeless people and 10 or 20 million vacant housing units mm -hmm. coexisting. So the problem, the, the solution of more upping the numbers isn't actually meeting the need. And, and even those who are wealthy in conventional terms are not as wealthy as a traditional villager in India has been in certain important ways. The feeling like the, the experience of community, the experience of feeling at home in the world, mm -hmm. the experience of feeling free to be generous. Mm. If you ever go to a, a, a traditional mm. society, it's amazing how generous people are. Mm -hmm. Right, how connected they are, how how uh, at ease they are with time. Like, where are people more in a hurry? Of uh, a traditional village in India, where where are you from, Af? Originally, where's well, your family from? Family's from Delhi. Uh, in, from Delhi, in India. Okay. Yeah. So so you know maybe you've gone to some of these places. Like, yeah. where are people in more of a hurry there or London or New York? Well, those in London and New York have access to a lot of labor-saving devices. Right. In India, to have a conversation, you have to walk to somebody else's house, mm -hmm. at least until recently. Mm -hmm. But in New York, you can just pick up your phone. Mm -hmm. So that saves a lot of time. We should be in an abundance of time mm -hmm. in a modern technological society, but it's the opposite. So this failure to achieve the paradise that technology and efficiency and capitalism has promised is becoming harder and harder to deny. Mm -hmm. And it is fomenting a, uh, uh, you could even call it a spiritual crisis. Mm -hmm. like, a, a, like the question, <clears throat> what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. um, is this really me in this role? Uh, this feeling of being trapped in a system that I, that I don't really agree with anymore. And maybe all of us being trapped in it. And how do we get out? Like, these are some of the things that are boiling under the surface. You know, this is reminding me, Charles, last time you came on here, you talked a lot about this narrative that we have around disconnection, that we have a story that we're disconnected from our ecosystem, from our planet. And therefore we can have more of an extraction relationship versus a generative collaborative relationship. And I know that's really underneath so much of what we're talking about here. So here's my question to you is when I look at a lot of organizations, we are seeing a lot of trends toward being more sensitive to the, their impact, to their employees, to their environment, to their consumers. Um, there's much more um, uh, receptivity toward that than ever. So I do see some hope in some of those ways. And it also seems like there's a whole revolution that still needs to happen to really build this next level of empathy and compassion which is one of the titles of this talk today of how to, how do you actually generate compassion? How do you start to feel more empathy toward that? If I'm destroying my backyard, I'm destroying myself. How do we, any, any tips you have on how to help people connect those dots a little more clearly? 
Yeah, so you've actually named two different things. One is compassion or empathy. The other is self-interest. So if I destroy my backyard, I'm harming myself. If I destroy the whales, I'm harming myself. If we cut down the rainforests, mm -hmm. we're harming ourselves. That is one reason to stop doing these things, but it's not a good enough reason. It's like, like if you approach a, uh, a corporation and they're like, they're like, Rick, I'd like to become, you know, we, we would like to become more sustainable. Um, and but we want to make sure that it, we're going to make even more money. And you say, yes, that's possible. If you do this, this, and this, you're going to make more money. Mm -hmm. Well, are they actually doing it because they want to be sustainable? Mm -hmm. right. Right. What are you appealing to? Mm -hmm. At some point, <clears throat> okay, like there is this kind of dogma that if you are socially and environmentally responsible as a corporation, then your profit, profits are going to improve as well. Mm -hmm. And morale is going to improve. There's lots of reasons why you're going to be more innovative. Mm -hmm. You're going to anticipate future regulatory trends with your pro-social and pro-environmental behavior. Like there's all these arguments why uh, profit and social environmental responsibility is not uh, in opposition, mm -hmm. except it's not always true. And, and probably anybody who's running a company or, or making these decisions, or even as a consumer, like you're going to have moments where the more ethical product is more expensive and boy, it sure looks like your bottom line is going to suffer and maybe it will suffer. Like, cause the question is, why are you actually doing this? Is it, what do you care about? What God are you serving? The God of money or the God of life? That would be one way to put it. And this choice point will inevitably come up as a way to clarify the, driving question of a human being or one of the driving questions, which is why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? And so we're given these opportunities to clarify that to ourselves and to whatever social or divine witness there is. Like, what do I serve? And it's necessary for it to seem like a choice to seem like, yeah, I have to either, you know, play it safe, minimize my risk, maximize my profit. And maybe if within that, I'll make the best ecological choice, but you're serving the profit mm -hmm. or are you going to serve what you really care about? That's, that's the choice point that every human being faces in one form or another. Do you, it sounds like, I just want to make it a little bit about you just for a moment, because you said something before the call. You're living your purpose, aren't you? You, as in Charles Eisenstein. Um, because you're on a journey doing what you're doing. I guess you love what you do, and which is why you're very good at it as well. And the way you're living your life as an intellectual and a thought leader is, I guess you made certain choices in your life and you found uh, a nice balance between the purpose and perhaps no profiteering, you know, who knows? But I think we all have a choice now, especially given the last year or so, to, to tap into the compassionate side of who we are, the way we live our lives, the jobs we do or don't do, um, 
the food we eat or don't eat, the, the way we kind of manage our micro ecosystem, the way we live out with our community. It all sort of starts there and then it goes into work life. Even if you have a job in a large company, you could be the CEO of a large organization or a business unit or a senior vice president or whatever it may be. It kind of starts at the core, your home. Uh, that's what I think anyway. And I think if that's if that has values around it and you're having these conversations and you're discussing these things and you have a little bit of space mentally to think through what we're discussing today, you may even have a tiny 1% impact in at work in the way you think about things. And therefore you might make the call, you make the right call when it comes, when the discussion comes up in a boardroom, when you say, well, let's do sustainability. Let's do sustainability. And you say, well, stop for a moment. Why are we really doing this? Is this really a genuine, authentic endeavor? Or do we deep down expect and accept that this is, well, um, show making? You know, the DNI is the same, by the way. We won't go down into diversity and inclusion today, but it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's ever so simple, like that, you know, it's coming from a good place or coming from a bad place. Usually there's all kinds of things mixed together. Uh, and, and I can't uh, um, showcase any particular organization or myself for that matter, as being a, an exemplary paragon of ecologically or socially conscious behavior. Uh, it's, it's that um, I encounter choice points where I am shown that something in the way I've been living or working isn't actually in alignment with this, the maybe new information comes in that I wasn't aware of before. And I'm like, oh shit, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. I can't just ignore this. So I have then an opportunity to, to grow or maybe shadow motives in my psyche come to light. I'm like, oh man, all this time I was, you know, just signaling my virtue in this particular endeavor and trying to gain approval of a certain uh, group of critics. And, and I was oriented toward that instead of toward really what is going to serve this world. Mm -hmm. So like the, these revelations and then the uh, changes that they invite, they come uh, progressively, each one opening up the awareness to, to the next one. So it's not about like being perfect. It's not about here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. Yeah. It's, it's this orientation attuning us to um, the next expansion, expansive opportunity, if that makes mm. sense. Mm. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. You, you recently went out to Brazil um, and you had an experience there. And uh, there's a fantastic essay that um, that you anyone can read on Charles's website. It's charleseisenstein.com or .org? .org. .org, okay. And there's a, the fan, there's a section on essays. You've got some fantastic mm -hmm. essays there, frankly. I mean, I think everyone should go out there and pick the ones that you believe are of most interest, uh, you know, because there are... But um, you, you talk about some interesting concepts there as well. Uh, I mean, we're, I know we're talking about climate mm -hmm. and we will continue to talk about that. But in order to be to play a part, I mean, one of the, uh, the things we want to do this year on Straight Talk Live, of course, based on feedback, a lot of our community members have talked about practicalities 
and pragmatism. So they've said, this is fantastic 47 episodes later and we've changed our minds. We're thinking differently. So we've, we've achieved that. Now they're saying, well, what can I do? What shall I do? As controversial as it may be or not, but what are the practical things you believe people can do with the knowledge that you're imparting um, at, at every level? So, I mean, I know you've got a lot to say about this. All right, so maybe maybe I'll talk about climate and the environment, right? To answer that question. Um, the viewpoint that I argue for, um, I wrote a book on it called Climate, A New Story. And, and it boils down <clears throat> to understanding Earth as a living being. So things like forests or estuaries, wetlands, soil, these are the organs of a living being. When the organs are degraded, it becomes unable to maintain homeostasis. The organs also include species. So like in the, in the carbon reductionist mindset, whales are not that important, really. I mean, how much carbon does a whale sequester? Like it's hard to, to isolate that variable in this complex system. Now, actually, whales are vital for the functioning of Gaia, for the functioning of this Earth. They um, transport nutrients from the ocean depths to the surface because they feed deep down and then they pee and poop up on the surface. And like that's, I mean, whale poop, I mean, man, like that's a lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they have a huge impact on nutrient cycling, which mm -hmm. then allows plankton to grow, which anchors the entire ocean ecosystem. They also transport nutrients from nutrient-rich areas where there's upwelling uh, deep water, which has mm. more nutrients, to um, areas that would otherwise be ocean deserts. Mm. Uh, and they bring life to those areas. Mm. And, and they know just where to go. Like these mm. whale songs, it could, it could be, and now I'm speculating, but it could be this, this kind of oceanic brain that directs resources to where they're needed. Right. So you, you kill the whales and this, this reverberation echoes throughout the entire ecosystem. And in the end, it actually does reduce carbon sequestration because um, the, the whale poop and these nutrients are feeding coccolithophores that when they die, they sink to the ocean bottom, sequestering carbon, calcium carbonate. Like you could try to reduce it to a number, but come on, the best way to understand it is the ocean is alive mm -hmm. and whales are part of this livingness. And the whole planet is like this, like rainforests. They don't just live where there's a lot of rain. They bring rain in from the ocean through mm -hmm. their transpiration and the condensation of moisture, creating low pressure zones. Like they, they, they anchor flow. Mm -hmm. The whole planet is a living organism. When you see it that way, then the priorities as an environmentalist, as somebody who loves this earth are very different. And these can motivate the kind of action that we're talking about, the kind of practicality. So first priority then becomes preserving any any ecosystem that's still intact, especially the Amazon and the Congo. Mm. And, and any pristine ecosystem has to be held precious because it is the, it's where, where the planet's memory of health is still intact. Mm. It's, like, it's like, if you're sick, like at least if you have some healthy organs, there's still hope. 
And the second priority is to heal and regenerate and restore all that has been damaged and broken. So that means regenerative agriculture, which is the opposite of the kind of industrial agriculture that's being imposed on India right now. Right. Agriculture that says, we're going to heal the soil. We're going to bring biodiversity back. We're going to heal the water or, or replanting forests or preserving marine areas so that the life can re be restored there. Uh, moratoriums on fishing and things like that. Uh, and then third priority is to stop dowsing the whole world in poison. Toxic waste, radioactive waste, you know, industrial pollutants, water pollution, uh, uh, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, like everything that's poisoning the tissues of the living being. And in my mind, fourth priority is to cut fossil fuels. But if you do the first three, that's already going to happen because mm -hmm. you cannot, you cannot drill and frack and mine uh, without destroying the organs of Gaia. Mm -hmm. And it also means there's a new book out called Bright Green Lies, which in painful detail documents the enormous damage being done by <clears throat> green energy industries. Mm -hmm. like okay. To, to yeah. make like car batteries, to make like, you know, electric vehicle batteries. I mean, you've got to get lithium, you've got to get silver, you've got to get molybdenum, you know, all these rare earth minerals, like, like cobalt. The, cobalt. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. horrific. Mm -hmm. uh, and even worse is biofuels mm -hmm. and mega dams, like all done in the name of cutting carbon. Mm -hmm. So, so this is what happens. This is what at the beginning I said, I'm concerned about what gets left out of the numbers. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're really helping me see that on a deeper level today. I don't think I really understood that to the same degree. If we just focus on the carbon metric, there's all these other metrics that are not part of that equation. That's not part of that focus and how important it is to look at the wider view of all the ecosystem, not just the carbon footprint, as we said earlier. Right. Especially when that's leading to harm, you know, like yeah. when you're cutting down whole forests and converting them to biofuels plantations and getting carbon credits for that, that's happening. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you another question about the system and governance around this. Just your views would be really appreciated. So given what you've just said, there, there's quite a lot of, you're talking a lot of sense. Of course, there's logic and, you know, if any human being, not AI, any human being would relate to what you're saying. We've got families, we've got children, we care about the world, we care about, you know, like you said, people don't wake up in the morning wanting to destroy the earth. We're not inherently evil people, neither are corporates. What goes on in the minds of, I'm just throwing this out at you, what, so what's going on in the minds of politicians and government leaders who are sanctioning or allowing um, what's going on in India, for example, or it's happening, it's happened in the States for a long time, you know, documentary after documentary after documentary or Bright Green Lies is the new book. And it's, 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 there's a lot of material now, the books that you've authored and crafted. There's plenty of evidence um, numbers as well, I guess, that suggest that we need some balance here. Why do we continue to see this happening? So in India, just talking about India, I don't want to just labor that point, but why would the, why would the leaders of a country like India who've um, been through the agricultural revolution, in fact, very strong agricultural uh, backdrop, 
Great, great organic food, small, tiny bananas. They taste really yummy. Or eggs taste lovely. Even the meat tastes good. Everything tastes great. And everyone knows. Don't get me started about the curries. Yeah, the curries. And we have a similar feeling in, you know, parts of Europe when we go and eat food, like even in Italy, you know, the tomatoes are like absolutely just delicious. So we, we get it. And people who consume food and like food, we all get this, right? We, we want better quality food, as opposed to some parts of the world where the food just looks big and it's got the right color and it's awful and there's no taste. And so we know the difference. We all know the difference. So why are people allowing this to happen, Charles? I mean, I don't understand. Well, it's because of um, ideology and inertia. Uh, a lot of, so these politicians and it could be other people who we think have power, yeah. um, they feel trapped by the system. If you're a politician and you're, you want to make a, like a radically different choice, for one thing, you've grown up in this system. You're acculturated to it. You're only seeing the things that the system's blinkers allow you to see. And, and even if you want to deviate from that, you know that if you deviate too far, you're, you're out of there. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a CEO, Right. And you want to change your corporate policies. Well, you can maybe change them a little bit, but if you change them too much, then what's the board of directors going to say? What are the bondholders going to say? What are the shareholders going to say? What is middle management going to say? What are the suppliers going to say? What are the customers going to say? Man, I can't really make too big a change. If I make too big a change, they're going to replace me with somebody worse. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a system that's taken on a life of its own. And that's why blaming somebody is a false diagnosis, Mm. trying to identify the source of our condition in evil people is a false diagnosis. All that you end up with then following that is you take down the evil people and replace them with somebody else who then becomes evil when they occupy that role. So that's why I have been for 20 years working on the level of the stories the narratives, the agreements, the mythologies that underlie all of this, mm-hmm. the belief systems, the perceptions, the ways of, of seeing. Mm-hmm. So for example, when you see things through a quantitative lens and you're a politician and you care and you've been told and immersed in a story that rising GDP is going to increase the quality of life. Right. Well, you know, rising GDP, I mean, you're going to have higher GDP when, when you increase productivity uh, through industrial agricultural practices, mm-hmm. and you get those big, tasteless, nutritionless fruits and vegetables, and the cheap factory farmed meat, mm-hmm. and the GMO corn and soy and all that stuff, bigger quantity, less labor, looks good. Mm-hmm. In, if you're only looking at those numbers. Mm-hmm. But, but the things like the, the quality of taste or the, the, even the nutritional value, like the trace minerals that come from uh, vegetables grown in well-tended soil, like none of that is on the, uh, in the metrics. Mm-hmm. And so that's just one way that, that but, it, but on a bigger level, it's the hypnosis of the myth of progress mm. and the the, the view of where we came from and where we're going and how to make a good world and how to, and what a good life is. Mm. And that's related to the essay you were mentioning. Like we, we need a completely different vision of what a good life is, what wealth is, 
what security is. And we can source that different vision from traditional and indigenous cultures mm-hmm. that, and, and the special moments in modern life that we catch a glimpse of another way of living. Mm. For some people, it was like Burning Man, you know, or a festival. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's not just a vacation. They're like something, I'm getting a glimpse here of a future. I'm being shown an aspect of human beingness that is, um, feels like home. Mm-hmm. And I know that we can bring this to the world. How do we do that practically? There's no easy answer. I'm not going to give you a formula and tell your listeners to do this and don't do that. Cause it depends on your circumstances. But when, when we're in the consciousness of a new story of what a human being is and what a good life is, then the practicalities become clear. Mm. Like the living earth hypothesis, you know, it's like, wow, personally, yeah, I can maybe support policies of conservation and protection and, and maybe I plant a garden. Maybe mm. I take care of soil and water somewhere. Maybe I devote myself to serving life. Maybe I address the political climate and the social climate and the psychic climate mm. of which the geological climate is a mirror. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you, you, you talk about, um, I can relate to this, you talk about three things in that essay, localization, degrowth, and slowing down. Um, talk us through each one of those, um, because I do think it has a pragmatic, there's a pragmatic view around how I, me, us, can actually instill some of that new thinking, yeah. the narrative in our lives. Yeah, so I, I visited a, uh, a community in Brazil called Source Temple. It's a, a spiritual community, or one would maybe give it that label. Uh, and, but what impressed me deeply there, or one thing that impressed me deeply, was the architecture. Right. If it can even be called architecture. Like, none of the buildings actually started with architectural drawings. Uh, but they were built mostly by hand, mostly from... Uh, scavenged and local and upcycled materials, uh, nothing standardized, every door handmade and unique, every window unique, sometimes not even square, because they found a, a piece of glass that may be broken, and they built a window around that. That's not efficient. What's efficient is to make 100 windows identically through a, um, a, an assembly line process, or to buy those windows from somewhere and buy them with money that you get from your own specialized labor. It's not efficient to do anything by yourself. And, and some of the, the building, you know, it's like, man, they could have done that a lot faster and only a little less beautifully, but somebody was devoted to doing it as it is meant to be done with full devotion. It's like every detail, was done with devotion. Mm. So you go there and everywhere you rest your eyes, you're getting devotion reflected back at you and abundance because what the, 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 the essence of abundance is the abundance of time. I don't care how much money you have. If you are in a hurry, if you feel like you're, you're too busy to enjoy life and to do what you really wanna do, you are not rich. Right. Rich means that I am free to do what I want to do. I have time. Like wealth of time is the 
primal form of wealth. And so the fact that somebody took as much time as, as was needed to make this beautiful and to make this well, that creates an atmosphere of abundance. And I can understand, I'm sure we can all understand, if you're living in an environment without any of that, you're gonna feel poor and maybe compensate for that poverty by acquiring more and more and more of the standard, of the generic, of the, the alienated things created by people you don't even know who don't care about you. Like mm -hmm. you feel your life with that stuff, more and more of it in, in futile compensation for what you're really seeking. The real wealth I'm speaking about, no amount is gonna be enough. And you're gonna look like you're greedy. Actually what you are is hungry. Mm -hmm. There's an unmet need here. And this unmet need rules our society. So degrowth might mean saying, you know, actually we don't need more and bigger. Maybe we need more local, more personal, more intimate, more related, more beautiful. And it would satisfy that need. Like how many pieces, how, how much clothing do you really need? Mm -hmm. If you have something made for you by somebody who knows you and loves you and thought of you, and it's perfect for you, maybe you want to wear it all the time. So, so this is, this is just to turn the cult of quantity on its head and the ideology of progress and the, um, our conception of what wealth is and to recognize that those who we consider poor actually have a kind of wealth. The other definition of wealth is the freedom to be generous. Right. <clears throat> and, mm -hmm. Yeah, I could, maybe I won't go into that right now, but, but here's a vision of human thriving that doesn't depend on more and more and more, which is hard to reconcile with an economy based on an interest-bearing mm -hmm. debt-created mm -hmm. money system, mm -hmm. which requires growth. And this infiltrates the corporate space, the business world, where you have to grow or die. Mm -hmm. uh, although some companies are rethinking that and, and saying, how could we survive and thrive and do good work and, and be prosperous without growing. Like that's sometimes a new thought. It's so taken for granted that you grow, your shareholder value increases and so forth. But there are other ways to do business if you're oriented toward something other than wealth or money maximization. Mm -hmm. and, and we could maybe, but it's hard to do that in the current economy. Like yeah. if you have, you know, bond bondholders to pay or a bank loan to pay, financing costs, you know, you kind of have to grow. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're talking about a change in the macroeconomic environment as well. Yeah, that's almost hard for me to imagine that other paradigm just because we're so entrenched in the current one of the growth model you're describing on that larger interest bearing level, but also on an individual level, if you look at <clears throat> in, how we get incentivized at work. We get incentivized by selling more widgets or whatever that is. So even down to the granular level, everyone's bought into that paradigm. And so it's hard to imagine like so much, almost, you know, vast majority of companies I know are wired that way. Of um, course. Yeah. I mean, imagine you're making windows, you know, mm -hmm. and one employee is cranking out lots of standard windows. And another one's like, man, I only made two windows today, but look, they're really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're not going to actually be able to sell them for more than those hundred windows the other guy made, but man, whoever gets these is gonna really enjoy them. Mm -hmm. Like 
that that employee is not going to be incentivized. And if he is, that company is going to lose market share. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's hard to go against. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but it is a, it requires a leap of courage to do anything for the sake of its beauty mm -hmm. and, and goodness. Mm. Yeah. A large part of, a large part of, staying focused on this narrative is to also remove distraction. And uh, often we have a guest coming on this show. And I think one of the consistent messages that comes back every single time, the two, one is uh, read a lot more or consume a lot more, but very selectively from the right people, the right sources. That's one. The other is turn the television off. Um, what I mean by that is turn off things that are fake and are distracting you, even if it means it's a post, just, you know, someone's come off this session today and just thought to themselves, gosh, I need to be more mindful. I need to slow down. I need to sort my life out. I stop going after the material, you know, that re sort of calibrating. And then you have a post that pops up on your feed somewhere on some social media about someone becoming wealthy or here are nine ways for you to, make $50,000 a month or something. And um, I, I guess I keep coming back to the practical aspects of it. I'm showing a little bit of care and empathy for those who are listening to us today. Yes, it's not easy to just say, great, you know, I'm going to like bang, reset overnight. It's going to take some time. But I feel like the more you listen to what Charles, you've got to say, the more you read the work you've been producing for 20 years, the more you consume the essays, the more you just take some time to reflect on, on some of these points. There's a greater chance that you're going to change your behaviors, even if it's incremental. Because again, this concept of exponential and acceler accelerating growth, doing it quickly, making it big. We've been fed that for a long time. I mean, we've been fed that for a long time. It's going to take some time to get out of that habit, isn't it? Yeah. And then like, yeah, then, you know, quite naturally, having been fed that, we apply it to ourselves yeah. and try to goad ourselves into some kind of moral or spiritual growth. And I've, I've been doing it wrong. I've got to get on it, you know, yeah. and um, that uh, it's almost like a, a war mentality. You know, I'm going <laughs> to conquer my bad habits and stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think there's another way to do it, um, which is to notice what's stirring in you and say, yeah, I want to nourish that. And how do I nourish that? Maybe it is, you know, by reading more of Charles Eisenstein. I don't, don't want to claim that that's necessarily so, but, but maybe um, what's really calling to me? underneath those distractions. Maybe it is time in nature. Maybe it is certain readings or certain information that nourishes this part of me that's kind of small and lonely and just cannot understand, the, cannot withstand the gale force winds of uh, my social environment, of the media, six pack abs, and you know, my built environment, my relationships, my expectations on me, the baggage I carry from my childhood, et cetera, et cetera. Like that little seedling needs some nourishment and I'm gonna, gonna nourish it. I'm gonna give it time, as you were saying, I'm gonna give it time to grow. Mm. That might be the most practical thing of all, mm. rather than 
um, you know, spitting into the wind. Mm. Mm. You know, that, that strikes me right there, that orientation of giving it more time because it puts me in a more receptive posture. It has Mm. me relax going into that versus the, where my mind wants to go is how can I do more? What can, what can I fit in more production toward the good, right? Mm -hmm. Versus wait a minute, what if that's not even the right orientation at all? And what if it's about stepping back, breathing, letting things come to you um, and seeing yeah. what does the relationship inform from that space? And it's not that you never act then, right? but it's that your action <clears throat> has a clarity um, and an appropriateness that was not available before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. And are you, um, Charles, are you, uh, you've written so many books and we actually, I was gifted a few of them by, really? my friend, by my friend Rick. Oh, thank you for my birthday. And uh, I've started to examine one of them now. I'm sorry, I haven't read all of them yet. Uh, Sacred economics is something I need to get to soon. What's What's next for you then? What are you What are you up to? Uh, what are you doing next? Are you writing another book? Are you Are you doing a Netflix series or something? <laughs> what, are you, what are you What are you planning? Oh, I have different different projects brewing. Um, I don't want to jinx them right now by saying, oh, I'm doing this. And then I never end up actually doing it. So, uh, but I've been doing a lot of, you know, public speaking on the internet and uh, mm. still write essays and I have some other, other interesting things brewing in the background. Mm. And, for, and for Charles, sorry, for, for, for Charles Eisenstein, the person and the brand, uh, let's say a decade out, feels like a long time a decade out what sort of uh impact do you want to make then uh, a decade out where we're looking back a decade and you're thinking i remember being on stl straight talk live in 2021 when this pandemic happened and it's now 2031 uh where will you be and what what will make you fulfilled or blissful more as blissful as you are today i'm not saying you're not blissful but what will make oh, you i'm compare? not always i'm not always blissful uh, what would make me really happy is to to know that my efforts to change the defining story of our culture have borne fruit and um, are not just you know some marginal thing that uh, maybe will have an impact in five hundred years. But I'd like to I'd like to see, um, and it doesn't even have to be because of me. But I I would be happy to see. Um, the oceans making a comeback and the Amazon recovering and uh, the agricultural system turning toward regeneration and the war machine being dismantled and the prisons being being shut down and and to feel that my efforts toward these things, which are, which are usually not direct on the surface, it's more about, for me, it's about changing the narratives underneath them. I'd like to be like, yeah, I wasn't wasting my time. It has mm. borne fruit. That would make me very happy. Mm. Mm. Okay. We have a question that's come in from our audience. A good reminder for anyone listening on Facebook, YouTube, wherever you may be, or live on the Zoom call, send in these <clears> questions <throat> now. Um, so one of them, uh, also about the movie um, Seaspiracy that you just mentioned earlier from your son watching that. So this is from Cameron or Cam. He asks... Um, uh, where'd it go? Here we go. Um, what are your thoughts on overfishing and the impact that it's having or will have on the planet? 
Yeah, I mean, overfishing, on one level, it's coming from the view of, of uh, Earth as a source of resources, source of profit to extract from an object. Um, and on another level, from the economic uh, drivers of it. And, and the fish are an essential organ of this Earth. Uh, and and horrific consequences will result if we continue to to deplete that organ. It's not that we can never eat fish, but we have to see ourselves as part of a cycle of life, and and ask you know what benefits the fish. Uh, you know how do we restore this organ? And, and live in a, in a relationship of mutual giving and receiving. Mm. Uh, how do we rejoin the circle of life? That's it. Mm. Because if, if we do not hold the fish precious and the oceans precious and the whales precious, then we will never treat them as precious. Mm. We will not be in a reality of a living earth. Mm-hmm. If we treat them as stuff, as things, as objects, we will end up with a word, with a world that is nothing but stuff and things and objects, Mm -hmm. much like the modern built environment. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we might survive. We might not die on that planet. We might survive on a concrete world, on a dead Mm -hmm. concrete world, eating artificial food, living artificial lives in bubbles with machines to suck carbon out of the air and a sky bleached white to reflect sunlight. Mm-hmm. And on that note, this, this, this next question is perfect. It says, I get overwhelmed when I think about the state of our earth and climate. I feel like it's hard for me to make a difference. Um, what are the most impactful things that you'd recommend for me to do, not do? Yeah. The important thing to realize is that we don't actually know how this world works, how this universe works, how reality works. If your idea of an impact is that your personal efforts are going to change things by force, Mm -hmm. then it's hopeless. And we are living in a civilization, in an ideology that says that that force governs the world. And we see this expressed in every realm from military, you know, geopolitics to, to um, the money world. Other cultures uh, held different causal principles. And they understood that self and world are not fundamentally separate and that Anything that goes on in the inner realm and in the personal realm, in the local realm, in the small realm, mirrors something that's going on in, on the cosmic level. And that, and that any change, any choice has global significance, has significance for all creation. You're not separate from creation. You're not like this separate self bobbing around, buffeted by random forces and having almost no effect on the world. Like that story of separation is at the root of the problems that we face, holding ourselves separate from nature, separate from each other. And it is at the root of the despair that says I am powerless. 
other cultures thought of it differently. And we need to, to recover some of their knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, which, all, which is already within you. Any time that you do some humble, invisible act of care or love or compassion, and you know that it's significant in that moment, you know that it's important and your rational mind cannot justify why. But it feels important to be with that friend or to be with that grandmother as she's dying. The rational mind says, well, she's dying. What good is that going to do? Maybe if I, you know, I'm with children and I can bring them up to be more ecologically responsible by this. But you know in your soul that here is where I'm meant to be. Mm -hmm. So the principle, you could invoke the principle of, of prayer. That anything you do with devotion is a prayer for the object of that devotion to become real in the world. Anything you do with devotion is a prayer. Mm -hmm. And it has a power to tug the, like it comes down to the modern myth that there is no intelligence in this universe outside of human intelligence. Right. And that even if there's other beings that are intelligent, the world itself isn't intelligent. Right. The despair comes from that mm. on the level of impotence and on the level of I'm alone here. We're alone here in a meaningless void. Mm -hmm. That is an ideology. Mm. Right. That's good. Other human cultures did not share that ideology and it's not because they were stupider than us. And we finally graduated into a realm of reason. And put such such benighted, wishful thinking behind us. Uh, mm -hmm. That attitude is the very kind of imperialism that has laid waste to all these other cultures. Mm -hmm. We have to humble, be, be humble, mm -hmm. and realize that we don't really know how this world works, and that your feeling of impotence is coming from a story, not a reality. You are actually powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes. And just one other practical thing that comes to me too is when I get overwhelmed, what's one thing that I can connect to, right? And so, for example, I have a friend who was a big snowboarder and he got into snow and he ended up getting into snow sciences and got his PhD in avalanche research and glaciology, all based on his passion for being outside and being in the snow. And that was the one thing that he could really connect with. And then now he does this amazing research out there on earth sciences and what have you that benefit um, our knowledge of the planet and how to make better improvements with how we're living here. And so I would just say that to the listener also, to the questioner is like, what's that one thing you can connect with right now that you can start to follow that thread and see where that leads you. Mm. One last super quick question. I know we are running out of time. We'll squeeze this one in. This is from Chaz. And he says, um, can corporations be part of any ecological transformation? There is no choice here, <clears throat> but my question and issue surrounds greenwashing does this need to be tackled via ethical and moral seeds? Um, yeah, I think we, we need to, to notice greenwashing as it's happening and, and understand the system that produces it and the, the psychology that produces it. And maybe also look within ourselves, like how do we greenwash our lives? How do we justify things? How do we gain acceptance and approval by displaying certain behaviors that may or may not serve what we're really here to serve? Um, 
And uh, yeah, you know, to understand like, like greenwashing can be a term of, of um, contempt. Mm -hmm. But anytime you are in contempt, you're missing some information. Mm -hmm. the, specifically the information of what is it like to be that person? Because mm -hmm. contempt says, I wouldn't be doing that. Well, that's because you don't understand mm -hmm. what their circumstances are. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to look into like, and the circumstances include corporate culture, uh, but it in includes the, the systemic uh, drivers of corporate behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and to, and I'll finally say to do something about it, you have to hold the knowledge that you're better than that. Mm -hmm. the greenwasher. You're better than that greenwasher. That's not what you really want to do. Mm -hmm. That's not why you're really here. Charles, um, I want to say thank you again for being on Straight Talk Live and talking straight. Um, and most importantly, um, I just love how I am so stimulated after our conversations <clears throat> and thinking about new ways of how I'm relating to my life, my ecology around me. Um, and I can imagine that for all the listeners out there right now. So want to thank you very much again for being part of our tribe. And working yeah. once again, where can people go to find you and your work? Where should they go? My website, charleseisenstein.org. Yeah. Charles, we have, before you go, as a message came in again, <clears throat> it's a good thank you for the reminder um, for that. We've created this group of, um, I think about 55, maybe 60 of us, um, past guests, but also some of the community who are very active. We call them mavericks or outliers or aspirational outliers or established outliers, whatever it may be, who think differently about the world. Uh, so there's been a request to see if you'd be happy to join that WhatsApp group, if you're on WhatsApp, that is. And there's a lot of debate and discussion and, and so many of the speakers share their work and, and so on. So if you're open to that, uh, let us know, let Rick and I know, and, and we'll add you to the community to, to, to continue this conversation there. Because a lot of the, the folks are on that group as well, having discussions. <clears throat> thank you. So, pleasure. Good. Okay, um, okay. Rick, over to you. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Charles. Uh, loads for us to think about. And it's always amazing having you on the show because of your unique thought process and the way you interpret things, which we think is, um, is inimitable. And it's your, I guess, your trademark. And we'll continue to be um, sort of um, enthralled and enamored by the work you produce. And the essays, I do think it should be a discipline for many of us to, from time to time, go onto your website and, and, and read your essays. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, thank you again for being the person you are. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys, for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, and yeah. looking forward to uh, the next adventures, the next chapters of where you're drawn. So thank you again, Charles. And then really quick for next week, for those of you tuning in, um, we're going to be inviting Nicole Sahin to talk about mm -hmm. the future of work and then trends impacting society today. She's on the cutting edge of a lot of global uh, industries and seeing what's happening in the talent industry. So that will be an amazing show next week. Thank you all very much and keep your straight talking in your circles and in your influencing conversations. Thank you all. Have a good one. All the best. Thank you. Good night.